Hey, Don't Panic Geocast fans. We just wanted to let you know that it's been a really long winter, and it's taken us some extra time to put on our summer shorts. So, this week, please enjoy this vintage episode where we interview Dr. Ryan May. We'll be back next week, hopefully with some real summer shorts, and we'll talk to you then. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Grading all those papers that I haven't graded all semester. <laughs> not. Well, they're all virtual, not right? Joking. No, uh-uh. I mean they're virtually filled out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I. Really hate grading papers. <laughs> Almost as much as I so hate. Do you chemistry. have your? <laughs> <laughs> so do you have your students do a lot of things uh, like sharing with you through Google Drive or or anything like that, or is it all still paper that they have to hand in and you have to carry around and look like a crazy person? Yeah, it's all still paper that they hand in because mostly like it, the assignments get assigned based on my level of aggravatedness or my attempt to engage with them so it'll turn into one of those things where i'm in the middle of a sentence and i'm like just get out a piece of paper (laughs) yeah um but i do have a few students on zoom so they'll like email me stuff and this is where like this year for sure it's abundantly clear that people walk around and say students are digital natives and those people have no idea what they're talking about when they say that (laughs) no idea at all like I've had some crazy questions and I think it's like back a few years ago I had students they had to buy a book directly from our department and I said bring money or just write a check I had to show four people how to fill out a check (laughs) yep uh and so don't doubt that yeah so it's the same thing with email and word and Adobe and Zoom. <laughs> so yeah, um, just because someone's young doesn't mean they know how to work a computer. <laughs> right. Uh, and Instagram doesn't count as you not, know technological proficiency. Not a little bit. Not even. I'm glad you can apply that filter. But send me this email with your assignment, okay? Oh, that was too hard. Okay. <laughs> and you know your name, my name, a salutation. <laughs> Hey, yo, Shan. <laughs> hey, yo, Shannon. <laughs> yeah. So we'll link that episode down in the show notes for those of you that don't remember the story. <laughs> um, I did have but, my, my TA got one this just this week that said, hi, professor, H-I-G-H. <laughs> and she said, how did they know? <laughs> oh, yeah. my. So it's been a trip. Mm-hmm. How are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, pretty good. Uh, you know, fighting the uh, the technology battle every day here, as we do. <laughs> We're uh, in the process of still commissioning and getting used to a new pick-and-place machine. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. What so can you it stick can... in it? <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of uh, electronic components, right? So it'll put them on a circuit board for us with about... 2,000 to 3,000 parts an hour at full speed. Wow. 
Okay. Uh, which also means when you don't have it programmed correctly, it is putting parts all over the workbench at 2,000 to 3,000 parts an hour. <laughs> That's like um, hitting cancel in the middle of a print job and it just keeps going, right? And you're like, cancel, cancel, cancel. <laughs> but it's worse, I'm guessing. Yeah, th- yeah, there have been some exciting times uh, getting this new machine going. Awesome. But it's been pretty awesome. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, ro- robots are fun. Yep. But, you know, the, this week, we're, we're trying to get back into having some more interviews, because it's been a while. We, we had that Planetary series, and uh, we got really exhausted <laughs> arranging microphone shipping. <laughs> yeah, I wish we could blame COVID, but we've never actually been in the same room and recorded together, so we can't even blame that for not having guests. It's, it's true. <laughs> uh, and we thought, well, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about technology and this week, we're excited to have Dr. Ryan May joining us to talk about life as a scientific software engineer. Hey, Ryan. Hello. How's it going? Doing well. How are you? Well, you heard. <laughs> <laughs> so as a disclaimer, uh, we both have known Ryan for quite some time. Yeah. I've known Ryan right. for over 20 years. How's that feel, Ryan? <laughs> That that hurt a lot. <laughs> I, I like to not think about that part. That, that's too to that. long. <laughs> wow, that's good. well. And I'll uh, I'll pile on top of that. I think I met Ryan eighteen years ago. No, no, twelve years ago. Oh, twelve see? years ago. That's much better. Go. See, twelve is easy. Not it's half the twenty. Your life. It's a. D- <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you're just rubbing salt in the wound. That hurt. <laughs> So it's going to be a fun show is the whole point of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have, I have Ryan to, uh, to thank slash blame for many turns in, in my career path. Uh, but before we get to all of that fun stuff, uh, Ryan, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into, I hesitate to say meteorology, but, but, but meteorology, software engineering, how did you get into this path that took you to where you are now? Sure. So um, it's kind of a two-pronged approach here, two, two ways I've got to where I am. So on the one side, you have the meteorology. And so I've always loved thunderstorms. You know, I can remember back, you know, some of the youngest memories I can remember are watching thunderstorms roll through when I was a, you know, kid, like five or six, and just really enjoying the thunderstorms coming through. And so that was always a fascination of mine. And, you know, eventually when you get through high school and things like that, you start trying to figure out a career path. And as someone who is fascinated by science and and nature like that, realizing, oh, meteorology is actually a job you can go into and and do this. Like, okay, sure, I'll go study that in college. That sounds great. Um, So that that took me down the meteorology road of just my fascination with storms. And I think at some point, I think I came in, I had already made my decision of I wanted to go study meteorology before the movie Twister came out. But I was definitely right along that time of when we had a whole generation of meteorologists come in with Twister. And so I was full, you know, tornadoes still fascinate me. Um, and that was definitely a motivating factor for why I got into meteorology. And so that's that was why I started in meteorology, was tornadoes and severe weather and thunderstorms. Um, now I'm, you know, currently more working as a software engineer. And so that side of things, 
Um, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to computers at an early age. Um, we had a, com- a family computer growing up from not quite as far as I can remember, but almost. We always had something, and so I always got to play around on computers, mainly computer games for a while there. But at some point growing up, I got to start twiddling around with basic and start um, messing around with things. Um, I remember going to school and I had a friend who was, um, we had a computing class, you know, it was probably fourth grade. And so we're in the computer lab and my friend's showing me things like, oh, that's really cool, you know. And I go home that night and start talking to my parents and my dad especially about that and find out, okay, he does some computer programming during the day. And it's like, oh, well, can we, can we learn more? And so that kind of started the journey, both being inspired, you know, inspired and or competing with a friend. Um, and then, you know, ha- luckily having, you know, the parental support to, to do it and getting shown these things. And so I think... Yeah, I think my first program we played with was this program, Guess Again Dummy, which is basically a number guessing game <laughs> where you're trying to pick a number, guess the number between one and ten, and you know you 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 guess a number and it says higher, or lower, or, or you got it right. And so you know, it, as a you know probably eight year old, that was fascinating to both play the game and to you know the, the idea that you're doing things to a computer that affect what it's doing and that you're producing this game was just utterly fascinating. And so that grew into working on a a Yahtzee game. And then uh, I think my crowning achievement was working on a, making my own hurricane tracking program. So that brings back in the meteorology and the severe weather of like, okay, hurricanes are always this thing in meteorology where you have these big storms out in the, the Gulf of Mexico for a week at a time. And so you're tracking them as they make their way towards the U.S. And so not content to just use what was available. Granted, that was there was not a lot of programs available back then, and the web was still in its early stages. So it wasn't like you had a whole lot of websites to go to to track these things. So it's like, oh, sure, I'm going to write my own program in BASIC to, to go do this thing, as you do. Um <laughs> And so I worked on that and did this hand-drawn map of the USA, which I, I don't have anywhere, but I can imagine that it did not look great. <laughs> but I remember, I think it was this program called Acid Draw that you could, you know, the, the, the thing you could do with it is you could draw this program as it was text mode. I mean, this is before Windows. So this is going in text mode and drawing this thing. But the benefit it has is you could save your, whatever you drew as a quick basic object file. And so I was able to make this oh, map that I could load into the program I wrote. And lo and behold, I had my own graphical map I was tracking hurricanes on. And um, yeah, I mean, I, totally impractical now, but as a, you know, 11, 12 year old or something, it was, you know, my nerd crowning achievement there. And <laughs> I mean, programming's always been something I've been fascinating by. Computers, all that has always been a fascination of mine. And mixed that with the weather. And so that was how I, I ended up at the start of my journey going to college. And at that point it was all to go tornado chasing and, and study severe weather and go to Oklahoma where they had just had the, the May 3rd, 1999 F5 tornado. And so it was a interesting times and yeah. So you went to study meteorology, did that, 
and then decided I haven't had enough because, you know, knowing you, you're one of these people that really is not afraid to dive into the math and dive into the theory on things. Uh, so you decided to go on to grad school. So how did you find your path in, in grad school as far as what you were going to study? Because at this point, you still weren't doing just computing. Sure. No. Uh, so, I mean, really, it starts in the undergraduate days at Oklahoma. And it starts with, you know, and part of that's, you know, sports was never a thing I got, I went and did, you know, not the most coordinated, not, not, not athletically gifted, but competitive. And so when you get to meteorology, we have forecast contests. And so that kind of in, inspires that competitive spirit of, oh, I can compete against my peers and, and, and try and be the best forecaster. Long story short on that front, I am not the best forecaster. Forecasting the weather is not something I'm gifted at. And an intuition of the, of the atmosphere is it's just it's not what I have. And that's fine. But along that road, um, there was a lot of times of trying to develop my own. I mean, this is early HTML4 days of early web pages. And so we had a departmental web server where you could go and post your own graphics and and, and, you know, it's kind of the thing everyone did within the department at that point was if you were computing inclined was to make your own forecast graphics and post them on a web page. And so, of course, being computing inclined, I did that as well and had my own I had a variety of things, both making weather maps, trying to pull out the latest observations for that week's forecast site. Um, at that point, we had the local forecast contest and the national forecast contest and trying to just, you know, um, compete in all those. And so I did a lot of computing to try and um, try and help. Well, I was trying to help me make forecasts, but really I, at some point it switched over and it was more interesting to work on the computing infrastructure than it was to actually work on the forecasts. I think most of my forecasts were trying to adjust from the weather models and just kind of, okay, we're going to add one or two degrees of the top of the forecast here and <laughs> subtract a few here and I, I remember still to this day, my the, the thing that kind of kicked me out of the forecast was we were forecasting for Point Barrow, Alaska, so up by the Arctic Circle. And I looked at some data and said, oh, it's only going to get to this, you know, I think a low four or something, four Fahrenheit overnight, which was a lot warmer than what the models were saying. And lo and behold, the models were closer to right. I think they set a record low that <laughs> evening, and I must have gotten like... <laughs> 20 points of error that night and went from being first overall to like playing catch up and that didn't feel good and I, I did not do well the rest of the both that period and and just the rest of the contest it kind of just broke me but it was I was always more interested from there in in doing the computing behind it and, and making weather maps and trying to figure out what can I do in the server to give me more information and less about understanding the weather like at that point my forecasts weren't about understanding the weather and the circumstances it was all about adjusting from what the computers were spitting out and so it was all computing focused and a whole lot less of um uh the meteorology behind it uh, so that was undergrad so that was all the computing there and then you know around that time i got a job with the national weather service the radar operations center um so that is a entity within the National Weather Service that's in charge of maintaining the national network of weather radars that, you know, detect tornadoes, measure precipitation and all that. I got to work that as an undergraduate and 
Um, started with some very basic projects, but eventually grew into editing code that was um, on an algorithm to deal with some of the radar data. And so I got to dive deep into some of the code that was powering this algorithm and, and edit it. And we were doing all these performance optimizations and testing. And um, I think I learned the C programming language during my time there. Um, Cause I think the only thing I had learned at that point was basic and Fortran, which is what we got as undergraduates in meteorology. Um, so that taught me C and that kind of sparked or renewed um, the interest in programming and really you know, or at least program at the deep levels, because C is a very low-level programming language, and so that really kicked things off and got me going. Um, and by the time I left there, it was clear the programming was a whole lot more interesting to me than the actual physics of meteorology. I mean, to this day, I still love the phenomena of meteorology, and you know, the, the idea that I study this science that every day is that you know the, the world is my laboratory, and every day is something new, and looking at daily weather forecasts is great, but the same time, I don't want to be out there making those forecasts, and I don't want to be out there just doing the science. The computing is an important part to me. It's so funny that you bring up that forecasting contest and all the effort you put in, and then I would win weeks where I was just like, uh, what the weather service say? Okay, two degrees lower, one degree higher. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so much of it felt like handicapping, like gambling on horses or something you're just like oh we're just gonna plus or one that's like there's so much game theory to like well everyone else is going to go with the weather service forecast and i think i can gain a point here if i just go lower or trying to forecast precipitation and you're like one of those contests you're you're forecasting the probability of precipitation so you're not just saying rain how much but it's well it's gonna the probability of precipitation is 70 percent chance of rain and trying to you know, game that in terms of do you go 70, do you go 80, oh, yeah. or maybe you undercut it and go 40. Exactly. And, and all those things were, you know, it, it's, it's more game theory and, and trying to compete against everyone else than it was actually making a good forecast. <laughs> I love but it did get you in the habit. I mean, the benefit is you do get in the habit of looking at weather maps every day and getting in the habit of studying the atmosphere. And there's a lot of value there. But in terms of the actual scoring and competition, it, it, it's more trying to win points than it is yeah. the best forecast. <laughs> you, I mean, I, I mostly got in the habit of going to the, the forecast contest webpage and clicking climatology <laughs> and submit. <laughs> and how many plaques did you win? <laughs> uh, zero, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not crying over that because, like you said, Ryan, forecasting was never really something that I cared about. I, I think I do have a name on a team top five plaque somewhere at OU okay. for that same season, but that's only because I got such a lead because I was decent like looking at it and saying, I'm going to go plus one or plus two on the temperature here or there. And I made a living like that. But that to me, that's again, that's more about knowing, thinking what everyone else is going to do and, you know, adjusting from there rather than actually making a good sound physically based forecast. Those are two different things. And so I like the competition aspect. I like the computing. At that point, you know, again, the, the, the forecasting of meteorology isn't why I got into the science. It was That was more the severe weather is why I got into it. And that wasn't part of it. But it was, it was fun for a while there, especially when all your friends are doing it. And, you know, it's it becomes part of the, the bonding process of the cohort, you know, going through undergraduate where you're all doing these competitions and doing things together. So you were working on algorithms with radar mm -hmm. and programming and 
getting very familiar with C and then, like you said, probably C++ and starting to get into some of these other languages as well. Uh, so how did that start rolling into a PhD for you? <laughs> so the first came the, the master's and going to graduate school. And that's where uh, the project I got involved in was trying to simulate some radar data so that you could, um, if you were designing a new radar, uh, as was going on at the time at o uh, University of Oklahoma, there was a couple projects going on testing and designing some new radar systems. Um, and so by simulating this, you could try and get an idea of what kind of meteorological phenomenon would be detectable by the radars. Could you see a tornado? How big would it have to be for the radar to see? Those kinds of problems is what you're, you're looking at. And so I got to go off the deep end and build, um, you know, in, in weather, in meteorology, there's a lot of work around these numerical models that simulate the atmosphere, both for forecasting and for research purposes. I got to do the same thing for weather radar, simulate what it would see based on some high resolution input. Um, and so I, I got to start that off in my graduate school career, go deep down to, to making this radar model, so to speak, this radar simulator. Um, and so that was really exciting. And I got to you know, program in the, the physics of the radar and, and try and determine that based on the bottle input. And then you know, you're, you're generating radar data, trying to match what other, um, what other people are used to looking at. And so going down that, I had this collection of radar data I generated, and I needed to make pictures of it. I needed to visualize it and see what my virtual radar was seeing. And a lot of the programs we used for visualizing radar back then were um, challenging to use and challenging to get data into. Um, so You can say names. It's okay. I, I, I shall. Um, so, I mean, I tried one back then called the Integrated Data Viewer, the IDV, and that back then couldn't take in the data I generated in one format. So I bounced off of it, and then there was another one that was... So my, my grad school advisors group used this program that's used a lot called Solo. At least it was used a lot back then. Um, it's claim to fame as a lot of being able to edit the data you collected to try and remove artifacts so you can get to just the weather data. Um, so tried to get my data into that format that it read into, failed at that. Um, and there were the failures were for a variety of reasons, both I think Solo required data of a certain, like to be named in a certain way, like the actual file names on disk, which was just bizarre, but I didn't realize that till much later. Um, IDV, I forget, I there was something about scaling of how values were scaled or anything, but again, not important. It was just, I went through a lot of trials and tribulations to use the existing tools that were available to me at the time and failing that, I'm like, okay, fine. You know what? I'm a good enough programmer. I can just do this myself. Now, doing it myself meant I taught myself C++. I taught myself a graphical um, toolkit for making, you know, uh, user interfaces with buttons and windows and things like that called Qt, Qt. Um, so I taught myself that. And I taught myself uh, the graphics programming OpenGL. So that's how people, you know, like your video games and stuff, or at least back then, how the video games and stuff were written to use the 3D accelerators that are in computers. And so I taught myself all of that, and in the end, had 
a decent program that I use to generate all the pictures, both my interactive, you know, look at my data, and um, in the end, the graphics that are used in my master's publication. Um, that was how I generated all my graphics, was my own C++ OpenGL-based thing. And, I mean, that was a lot of... I was fortunate to have the, the, the freedom to teach myself those technologies and um, to be able to, a lot of resources on the internet were used and it was surprising, you know, it was to grow from a lot of simple examples up to, okay, you've drawn one colored triangle on the screen. Can you turn that into plotting a bunch of radar data? And that jump from one triangle to a bunch of radar data is actually not as big a jump as it seems. Um, because of just how things work, um, so it was. It was. It, it was. It's most still looking back. It's. It's really feels um, incredible that that you know that able to make that jump at the same time. It's like it, it's actually a logical progression from doing one thing to doing that same thing repeatedly. And probably the like from beginning to making the one single triangle was larger than triangle two. You know, oh, absolutely. Graphics. Yeah. There were a lot of, of times of run that program and, oh, I've got a black screen again for the 15th time. <laughs> and printing I values. Right. I mean, it, it's, it was a lot of, thankfully, it was you have examples on the internet. And so it's copy that code and just build it and make sure it runs and get the same colored triangle you see in the web page example. And then you start modifying the values in there and seeing if it behaves like you expect. I mean, that's that's so much computer programming is, is not whole cloth, like making things from scratch, but it's, oh, here's an example. Can I get the same results? Because, I mean, maybe that's experience talking a little bit at that point, but it you know it's not always trivial to take something you see online and get the same results as that original person got. So it, the first step one is, if I run this, do I get the same thing they said they got? Okay, it works. Now, what happens when I change this value of 1.0 to 2.0? Do I get a taller triangle? Do I get a smaller triangle? Do I get nothing at all? <laughs> yeah, the amount of, well, it works on my machine that actually occurs in real life is oh, terrifying. Sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> and those were the nice days of grad school where I didn't, ha I, I just, you know, was just running on my laptop and twiddling things and making pretty pictures. And it was all for me. Nice. So, so, so you write this data viewer, uh, this radar data viewer, and you have lots of options to use it to make your masters. And then, uh, for some unexplained reason, you decide to continue in grad school, <laughs> as, as all of us did. Yeah, continuing in grad school, I mean, it felt like a logical progression at the time. I mean, it still seems, based on what I knew back then, as a logical thing to do. When I got done with my master's, I hadn't delved into the science of weather radar to the detail that was available. Because at Oklahoma at that point, they were really digging into creating this weather radar curriculum. And so there was a lot of options in front of me in terms of the education and classwork ahead of me. So I got the opportunity to go take a whole bunch of classes and delve into all of the nitty gritty behind how weather radar operates, all the signal processing all the theory behind how um, antennas work, not just for radar, but any kind of electromagnetic signal being transmitted needs an antenna. And so, I mean, I took a class on antenna theory 
and all these details, which was fascinating at the time. Um, and so it was nice to start a PhD and like get to take all these cool classes and really understand things and, and nerd out of her radar. Like that's kind of what a PhD is. You get to dig into a certain area of specialization and really, you know, get to get to under, well, get to try to understand what's going on. Um, whether you succeed or not is a whole other question, but really dig into one area. And so that was, that was what was in front of me. It's like, Oh sure, I'll take more classes and go understand this further. Not fully grasping what then comes at the end in terms of the dissertation and, you know, trying to come up with independent research and, and, you know, thrust forward in one small area of the science. Um, so I was really great at classes and really enjoyed learning more, but then it came time to do my research project. And that was the part of, Oh, what have I done? Um, <laughs> I, I don't regret it, but at the same time, if I had known how I was going to feel three years in, I might not have made the same decisions. Um, you know, being the career, the, the, the lifelong overachiever, you know, you suddenly realize, Oh, it's not just about what can you do, it's what, what, what do you want to do going forward? And that becomes a different question to answer for yourself. And I, I got through, and it became just mainly a getting through my PhD was a force of will. And I got to do a lot of cool things. Like, I, am, I wouldn't be where I was if not for the time I spent in my PhD. So finishing up my master's, I had that data visualization program. So we were getting ready to publish the results of that, make all these graphics, and I was doing some testing of my radar simulator. And of course, you know, it's not enough that all these engineering courses had me doing MATLAB, but I'm sitting here on my computer in my grad school office and testing my code and trying to debug things or at least understand what's going on. And um, so so MATLAB is another language that does a lot of computing. Um different from what I've done, but it's used a lot in engineering and it makes it very quick to write code and do visualizations, but it's a commercial product and you have licenses. And so as I'm trying to debug at my desktop, getting MATLAB is access to MATLAB is, is a challenge. And so I'd been, I think this is the days of Slashdot as opposed to Facebook where you're getting all your computing information. And I'd seen all these things on this language called Python. And I see these things talking about, Oh, Python can be used as this MATLAB sort of replacement, do MATLAB-like things. So, of course, because trying to get a publication out the door isn't enough, I need to go, I'm going to teach myself Python this afternoon and use it to debug my code. Um, absolutely absurd some of the things I decide to do, but at the same time, it paid <laughs> off. So, like, I'm sitting here debugging my code and able to find bugs in my code partially through the help of Python, being able to look at arrays of data that um, I'm getting out of my program and looking and saying, oh, that's not right, and that's not right, and plotting it up through Python very rapidly. I think in an afternoon, I was able to actually make some plots with Python, which is just anyone who's done any kind of programming and, and knows the learning curve of learning a new language and how long it takes to get up and running, like an afternoon for Python Admittedly, as someone who is technologically inclined, um, still to do that in an afternoon still is is a nice success story. It's a nice way to say, oh, this is something useful I should put more effort into because in an afternoon I have something that's already helping me fix bugs, if not before publication, at least going forward. 
And so it was, that was my start of my journey there. And so from there on, um, that was, that was the start of something, I guess, big for me. I mean, Python's been proven to be uh, a very valuable tool within the sciences and meteorology has taken off with it, largely because of um, how much, how quick it is to try and test things in there and how quickly you can get plots out and things like that and how easy it is to change. Um, we can talk about weak points later, but there, there's a lot of strength in terms of how quickly you can code something up and test it. Versus, and that's the same benefit. Like it provides the MATLAB-like benefits of quick prototyping and plots, but you get it up in Python as this open source, freely available tool um, with a lot of community-developed packages. And so I started down that road. Um, this was like 2006, and so did that while procrastinating on my PhD qualifying exam. <laughs> Um, and, and I think, I think I was home that summer with my new newborn son. So it was a interesting summer procrastinating on a big test, <laughs> first time parent, and I'm going to learn a programming language, but you know, we all have our hobbies. <laughs> um, so learn Python and, and that paid off. Like I, I don't regret a minute spent doing Python. Um, and that paid off throughout grad school. I, I used that in courses that fall um, rewrote a lot of my grad school code using Python and just a lot of tools came out of that and, and helped me quickly be able to knock out various calculations and things in Python versus what it would take to do it in other programming languages. And, and, um, and through that journey, then get introduced to a community of developers in scientific Python, this community based ecosystem of tools in Python uh, I got to go to my, in grad school, I got to go to my first SciPy conference, which is a gathering of scientific Python developers. Um, kind of joke that's like nerd summer camp. It's just <laughs> fantastic going for a few days. Back then it was only a few days um, in Pasadena, California. And went there and it's like, oh, there are people who are far smarter than me in this. And I'm picking up good habits in terms of how you develop software writing tests for your software, which is just a foreign concept to me before I went to that conference and just all the cool tools. And, you know, I, I, I would say inflection point in my career trajectory in terms of going from meteorology, maybe being a researcher, trying to figure out my area of the science to oh, the, the hell with the science, all these cool computing tools and programming. That's, that's what I'm interested in. And I think it's that point where even if I hadn't admitted to myself, that's where I decided that I'd much rather be making tools for someone and let someone else figure out their science. My, my area that I'm good at is making the tools and figuring out the scientific frontier is best left to more interested people. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And so let's see, I would say probably 2000, eight or nine, somewhere in there, uh, is when I got to take a class uh, from somebody that we all had, uh, Dr. Phil Chilson. I, I took thermodynamics from him, and he was showing us this QT plot, which we've talked about some on here. And he had a MATLAB plotting uh, code for it. And 
I'd heard something about Python. I was like, well, you know, forget this. I, I'm going to write my own thing in Python because I don't really get all these adiabat lines yet. And if I have to write something to do it, then maybe I'll get it. And I think it was WinBarbs or something. Somewhere in there, I got stuck on something and went to our IT person uh, in the department who then said, hey, there's, there's a guy that actually knows the answer to this. And took me to your office uh, as you being the person that had written the WinBarb code in Matplotlib. <laughs> and uh, so I got to meet you and uh, learned a lot more about Python in about 30 minutes than I knew at all at that point. Uh, but you and uh, another person, uh, Kevin Gobert, uh, who we both worked closely with, really introduced a lot about Python to me. And you said that was a, you know, going to SciPy was an inflection point for your career. I would say some, something in the area of uh, that Met2 lab and, and you showing me some Python basics did the, basically the same thing for me. Because um, I really got to see, oh, wow, there are people that are using this uh, daily to do really big things. So you decided that you liked making the tools and as it turned out, whether you wanted to admit it or not, we're pretty good at helping people learn and use these tools. Uh, that ended up being a pretty important theme for you so far. So how did you get to where you are now? Well, where, where are you now? We'll put it that way first. <laughs> sure. That's, that's a good place to start. So right now I'm at a, an organization called Unidata. And so what Unidata's mission is, is to bring, um, access to data and tools to work with data to the atmospheric science and maybe some of the broader earth system science community. And so we're funded by the National Science Foundation. And really it's, you know, the, the kind of the joke motto is we beat our head against the wall so you don't have to. <laughs> so we provide a lot of tools to help simplify access. And it started with, you know, some very early on, access to weather data. And part of that's because I think meteorology is relatively unique in having the amount of real-time information that's um, that's kind of relevant to people. I mean, I know in, in geology and geophysics, you have seismology, you have, you know, very seismic instruments, but otherwise there's, and, and oceanography has a lot of similar type buoys and stuff, but meteorology seems to be very prevalent in terms of the impact, the, the um, public safety impacts, you know, tornadoes, flooding, and just the daily, is it going to be hot or not kind of thing. And so you have a lot of these real-time data sources that are available um, to support the National Weather Service and various private forecasting companies. And then Unidata started as a way to try and bring these same real-time data sources to the university and education community. And so we started there, and so we've developed from bringing that data to everyone, which we still do. We, we provide, um, I think, two terabytes of data every day to everyone. Uh, and we have a variety of tools ranging from various um, standardized data formats, like NetCDF, to tools for providing access to data, um, to doing various end-user tools for visualizing the data, like... Um, we repackage the National Weather Services tools that's used in forecast offices for a visualization called AWIPS, the Advanced Weather Information Processing System. 
So that's used in the forecast offices. We at Unidata repackage that so universities can install it in the computer labs and, and you know teach classes using that tool. Um, we do other tools that help visualize it. Um, like, like I mentioned, the integrated data viewer earlier is something I bounced off of. Uh, we still maintain that today, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a graphical application for visualizing data in, in two and three dimensions and a variety of data formats. And then the tool I work on, since I'm a Python-focused person, um, I work on this library called MetPy that kind of brings all this meteorological specific functionality to Python. And so in the scientific Python space, you have a lot of existing tools that help make um, people's lives easier to use Python, both you know doing computation, making plots, reading data. And so we on MetPy just fill in what you need for meteorology that's not already available um, out there. And so that's, that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's both developing that library, it's testing it, it's supporting users of it, it's teaching workshops of it, it's planning out the project. So it, it spans everything from the project manager level to quality assurance to developer. So as we joke, we wear, we wear all the hats at Unidata. It's a full stack developer, but not in the usual way that people mean in the tech sector. <laughs> right. And so one of the coolest things about MetPy, I think, is, well, one, the amount of things that it can do and the amount of thought that went into the structure of it. It's very clearly structured in a lot of libraries. Maybe that's not so much the case. Uh, things are kind of scattered all around. But MetPy is pretty clearly structured, but it also has this cool unit-aware functionality which you gave a great talk on units, and we'll link that in the show notes. Uh, but maybe you could sort of give folks a little bit of an idea of what that means for a piece of software to be unit aware and why it's a novel concept. Sure. So what we have is, so in Python, in the scientific Python ecosystem, you have this library called NumPy that gives you this array of data that you can pass around and do calculations on. So if you're familiar with C or Fortran or many other compiled languages, you need to write this for loop over all the data and say, okay, for each individual chunk of data, I need to do this operation. And what NumPy brings you, and languages like NumPy bring as well, or NumPy, uh, MATLAB, excuse me, brings, is this idea that you're operating on all the values at once, and so you can take two arrays and multiply them together and, and NumPy takes care of the loops for you, but you only have to write this simple expression of, you know, C equals A times B. And you don't need to worry about, you know, how many values are in the array, looping over it, all that. You can just write what comes to mind. And it maps very well to how algorithms are specified in scientific papers and, and, and whatnot. So that's NumPy. NumPy brings you this, this mathematical array. When we talk about unit-aware computations, um, we're talking about, tracking the dimensionality associated with your data. And so in MetPy, we use this library called Pint that kind of takes a NumPy array and keeps track of unit information on top of it. So say you've got an array of um, wind speed. Instead of having to manually know, okay, I've converted this data, I've read it in, it's in knots, I've converted it to metric, and so it's now in meters per second, you can just read in your data. You've attached, based on what's in the file, the metadata that says these wind speeds are in knots. 
and then the computation goes through and because of the the infrastructure the software infrastructure underneath it, it it knows to keep track of the dimensionality of the data you've operated on and so when you do computations maybe it spits back out knots for you or it can convert to meters per second where it needs it and that extends to more um, complicated calculations as well and that we use a lot of meteorology um, I, I trying to think of frequent calculations that you know they're used all over the place this dimensional analysis to try and keep track of you know a frequent one i guess would be you know you have the air temperature you know a lot of us are used to using it in fahrenheit maybe you're you're over in europe and you're using it in centigrade either way a lot of the calculations need it in kelvin and so as opposed to manually doing all these steps and getting really weird results um, if you don't convert it, you need to convert to Kelvin to do the calculations. And so by using this unit framework, you can have the software track and do the conversions for you without needing any kind of manual intervention. And so um, the challenge is making sure you specify the units when you're using the tool. But the benefit is it does the right thing. As opposed to, you know, at best, you're, you notice if you get wrong values out. At worst, you get wrong values out and you don't notice and you publish them or worse, use them somewhere else. Um, the, one of the famous examples for why it's good to have computers track units is the Mars Climate Orbiter. And so the, uh, I forget the details of the story. I know basically two parts of the Mars Climate Orbiter were written by two different contractors and one expected, one used uh, Imperial units and the other assumed metric units were coming in, or vice versa. At any rate, because of the failure of dimensions between two subroutines in the code on the Mars Climate Orbiter, the spacecraft, the words of the report were, it failed to enter orbit. Or as I usually put it, it bounced off of Mars. Not physically, but it, it, it bounced off the, the, the limited atmosphere of Mars and did not enter orbit and is, you know, floating through space. Because because of units, you know, a three hundred and twenty nine million dollars spacecraft was lost due to unit issues, and so that's usually my pitch of like, no, it, it's a pain to specify units, but like you need them somewhere in there. Either you're doing it manually, and I have spent hours going through my own code <laughs> because I'm getting weird results and wondering, is it a unit issue? Um, P.S. It wasn't in that case, but you know, <laughs> if you have a unit framework behind it, you know, you let the computer do the work for you and just. You know, computers are really good at tracking. Have you multiplied by length? What units did you multiply by length? Have you multiplied by or divided by time? What units were that in? And so, computers are really good at these things. And so, in MetPy, for our calculations, we rely on on a framework that can track this and let it you know, track all the operations on values through multiplications and divides and what else. So. So that's one of the fun things. You, know, you say, well, it just works. And it just works if you're, if you're a scientist, right? So you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to let the software take care of this for me. But you're the developer. So you get to deal with all the weird, weird corner cases <laughs> and making sure it works for the scientists so they can trust it. So, yeah, so in those corner cases aren't, like, unit frameworks are fine. Like, we, we all define units and how they work and how they convert. That's... That's all straightforward. It's 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 the computers. It's the robots. It's you know they they do exactly what they tell the, what we tell them to do. And sometimes we tell them 
very imperfectly what to do. Um, and so the, the talk John alluded to that I gave was just about how these libraries interoperate. Um, and so the, the pint unit framework I talked about what we use in MetPy and how it's supposed to just, and that's just in you know quotes, um, air quotes here, um, just supposed to wrap NumPy arrays and everything, everything just works. Um, yeah, you end up with a lot of weird situations where code assumes one thing and, you know, will very helpfully drop units for you. And so there are a lot of cases in trying to develop this and use it where you end up trying to, you know, you, you feed your units to this function that's integrating and you expect it, you, you get an integrated unit out. And somewhere in there, it decides to drop units for you and you get a result out that has no units. And, you know, that's fine. You can cope with it. But having to work around this on one or tens of cases, every time you turn around, you're wondering, you know, it's not that it strips units. It's that later calculations assume you still have units and then they fail in new and interesting <laughs> ways of you get these error messages and you're, you're going back through trying to figure out, well, where... I gave you data with units. Why is there no units on this at this point? That doesn't make sense. And so you're 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 doing a lot of work. I mean, the beauty of what we've done in MetPy and, and the scientific Python ecosystem in general is that you have a lot of code written by many different people and being able to play together and take advantage of, you know, maybe I, a lot of the early Python work in the scientific um, side of things was driven by NASA and the space uh, Telescope Science Institute, and so things like um, you know early code of NumArray, um, which is a precursor to NumPy in terms of providing arrays in uh, numeric arrays like MATLAB in Python, was driven by you know uh, funding in the on the astronomy side of things, and so we're, we're leveraging a lot of that work now in meteorology, and so it's a great crossover and great broader impacts of funding for scientific software. On the flip side. Use cases for there for, for you know astronomy or just these, these original codes that date back you know tens ten years make assumptions that aren't necessarily valid today and so we deal with a lot of code on MetPy that we didn't write and trying to interface with it or make it work or or make it play well with other pieces we picked up elsewhere like we didn't write the unit framework pint. We, somebody else wrote it for their needs and published it on GitHub, and it's great that it's out there for us to use. But trying to take these two pieces that are out there and make them work together for the cases we need and running into quarter cases is kind of – it's a challenge. Um, it's a never-ending set of challenges, but it's, 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 it's interesting, and, and it's fun to work on as long as you're not – it's fun to solve the puzzles, but sometimes you really just want something to work, and when it doesn't work, it's exceedingly aggravating. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we won't talk about map projections or anything right now. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like children. Um, <laughs> I'm going to need you to define corner case for me, and probably sure. half the people listening to. <laughs> Absolutely. So corner cases just mean, so when you're writing code, you have your, your main, like, you have your code where you take three plus four and get seven out. So what happens when you have zero? Well, I mean, that's pretty easy for adding and subtracting, 
But then when if you extend the multiplication, well, when they start having zero as one of the inputs, now you get zero out. And so it's just quarter cases define parts of your collection of what are valid inputs that might produce weird outputs. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know, if you yeah, were somebody gives you go. negative Kelvin temperatures. <laughs> yeah, that's a burr. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 kind of when you're operating with zero or one, or you've got a collection of items, but you actually that collection doesn't have any items in it. It's empty, or it's a lot of things like that. Right. Just, okay. It's valid, but it might it can behave in weird ways depending on how you've written the code. Gotcha. Makes sense. Or like imagine in a, a sounding, so real sounding data, you know, you, you, you have this definition of what, what an LCL or an LFC is, and they're very clear. And when you as a human are looking at the data, you're like, sure. When a computer's looking at the data and the data are noisy and there's little wiggles in the temperature, <laughs> uh, it doesn't give you the result that the human would get. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think that the term corner case comes from, if you think of in terms of, like, if you had a square that defines the area that you're operating on, you're off in the corner of that uh, set of input. Right. You know, zero, zero, if you're talking thinking a 2D mathematical plane. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, what we've been talking about, and you mentioned that, okay, so Pint was written by somebody else. Matplotlib is written by a lot of somebodies. You're one of those somebodies. Uh this is all open source software, and a lot of science now is really dependent upon open source software. So what does that really mean for science to be dependent on these open source packages? So I think it's probably a good place to start in terms of defining what is open source. And so that harkens back a few decades, probably even before, you know, the few decades before I came around. Um, where you had this code that runs an operating system, might be Microsoft DOS, Windows, um, Mac OS. So you have this software that runs things, but you know for all those kinds of programs, or maybe Microsoft Word, you don't have access to the software that's running. You can't get to the underlying computer code. You can't modify it. You, you have no control over it. You have no way to introspect what it's doing. And, you know, largely day-to-day, -day, that's that's not of significance. Um, but open source means the code that powers these programs is open and freely available. That means you can get a copy of the code, and if you're so inclined, you can modify it and run that on your computer. Um, that's how Linux came about, is Linux started as an open source um, alternative to some of the Unix operating systems that were out at the time that were not freely available. And so Linux has really become the de facto um, open source operating system that you can run on your computer and you could get a copy of the code and any program on your Linux system is available for you to get the code and make modifications and run as you see fit. Um, and that's an important distinction for a lot of people um, that you can that the computer you're running, you have the power and the ability to do whatever you want to with it. Um, where that comes into sciences is when you start talking about 
um, the openness of the results and the reproducibility of scientific results. Um, if you're running in something, some kind of proprietary software, um, I don't want to pick on MATLAB necessarily here, but any kind of closed source, you know, maybe some kind of statistical analysis or whatnot. Um, one, if somebody has published a paper that relies on these, you know, code implementing some kind of advanced statistical analysis, if I don't have a license for that software, I can't reproduce the results from that paper. And that's not good for reproducing the results. That's not good for the openness of, of, of the science. It's also a challenge because if the code's not available, you don't actually know what's going on under the hood. And as we get more and more complicated in terms of um, very advanced statistical methods, machine learning, deep learning, all these very high technical, um, just ludicrous amounts of computing going on on here. If you, you, you can't inspect the code and understand even, you know, very, it's very often some of these results depend on details of what you've done. If you've averaged your data and removed the mean, or if, or, or you know, try to, um, we call it detrending the data and trying to remove maybe some kind of linear trend data or any kind of pre-processing step. It's very easy, you know, not to necessarily, um, in some kind of nefarious way, try to hide these steps, but you just forget about them or gloss over them when you're publishing a paper. And unfortunately, you did it for a reason. And it's an important, it ends up being an important step in terms of how you cleaned up the data before a computer did something, you know, very complicated to it. And then, you know, someone years later is trying to reproduce these results because they want to first match or at least get something similar to what was working and then advance on it in some way. And, you know, you're missing valuable steps. And without the code, you can't necessarily understand what was done because it wasn't properly documented in the paper. And so it's, you know, the open source helps with that. It provides the ability, you know, you make your source available so that others can build on it and using the code as the documentation for some of these processes, just like you would the paper for some of the um, thought processes behind it. So it's, it's kind of open source is a nice way to dovetail with the paper in terms of providing um, a very concrete documentation of what was going on, if you can understand the code. But, but how do people make money then? Oh, the profit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not all. I'm not all against it. Like, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But on the tool side, yeah, that's that's a challenge. I'm not sure on the tool side. On the science side, you, you you're making your money off government grants. Oh yeah, largely. Yeah, I know how to make the money there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the tool makers, you know. So what we've seen on the open source side, at least on the Python side, is just because the code's out there doesn't mean people know how to use it and use it correctly. Uh, so there's a whole, there's a large space there in terms of providing support and training and even, you know, targeted development. You know, there's been some success stories in terms of companies need feature X. They need some kind of, I, I'm, I'm struggling for a concrete, some kind of like advanced Bayesian, you know, multivariate 
whatever in this library. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Or whatever. And so um, funding development of that feature in the open source project is great. Or as another example, um, let's take Google. We all know Google's in the business of making money. That's that's That much is clear. And yet they've open sourced um, TensorFlow, which is their machine learning library that they use for a lot of machine learning. Um, other ones, uh, PyTorch, I forget where that came out of. Um, I can think of other open source examples that aren't necessarily scientific in nature. Um, for instance, Facebook um, open sourced the, the uh, web browser toolkit they use that you know powers the, the Facebook interface that you use when you go to facebook.com in your web browser. Um, it's called React. Um, they open sourced that. And so the benefit there is, you know, it's a general tool that isn't your competitive advantage. So Facebook doesn't make money off React. Facebook makes money off of advertising and keeping people on Facebook. Google doesn't make money off of TensorFlow. Google makes money off of using TensorFlow to do machine learning to better sell advertising. Mm -hmm. But the point being, they can open source it. They can, you know, create this shared infrastructure. Sure, other people might be able to profit off this as well, but they also benefit from people fixing bugs in it, adding new features to it, helping advance it, helping maintain it. Uh, and so you've kind of seen this revolution over time in terms of it's science and, and open source in general writ large. The web's a, a great user of open source in terms of open source and share the things that aren't your competitive advantage. But then keep to yourself the, the, the last 10% that is your competitive advantage gotcha. and using that, but sharing these shared infrastructure that maybe others will find useful and you might get some free maintenance out of it. So any open source package, you know, okay. So there's a, a driving force behind it, say Facebook or Google, or in the case of MetPy, you know, Unidata and its community. There, that's a relatively small number of people behind any single one of these packages. And most of it, as you mentioned, like Matt Plotlib is volunteer time. There is some, some paid time, but there's a lot of volunteer time that goes into this. Uh, so how is that not a, a teetering tower that all will come crashing down around us? Honestly, I'm not sure that it's not a teetering tower that's going to come crashing down around us. But, I mean, there is definitely a challenge there. Uh, I think it's... The term that's frequently used is the tragedy of the commons. And I'm struggling to find out or to remember who the author of that phrase is. Um, But basically it means when you have these common things that are shared by everyone that are freely available, nobody wants to pay to take care of it. You know, we have trouble, you know, not to turn this into some political thing, but you have trouble funding shared infrastructure at the you know city water electricity you have trouble with these same kind of infrastructure level things and funding these kinds of projects the same thing happens with software you have freely available open source software that works great nobody wants to pay for you know keeping it going nobody also a few people want to put in the time to maintain it and it takes getting a few um motivated individuals to just you know, out of a passion for it. I mean, part of it, I think, on the software side, you know, I don't know of anyone who is passionate about making sure city water infrastructure works and is willing to work on that in their free time. 
But on the software side of things, there are many individuals who are willing to just go hack on code for fun. And part of that, I think, is just unique to computer programming where many of us see it as a puzzle. Just like, I mean, I had a friend in grad school joke I did programming challenges like their Sudoku. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's true today. Like, programming problems are, you know, they can be relaxing and it, it stimulates a part of the brain and there's a reward when you get something working. Um, every year, I, mean, I say this because we're coming up sort of to, you know, December 1st is not that far away. And so every year there's this advent of code challenge that has a series of one-a-day programming problems. And I'll do that every year. And it's fascinating to figure out just, here's a programming problem. Take this input, solve this, spit out the output. And, you know, that's fun. That's just like solving a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku or whatever other problem. And so coming back to where I was starting with this is there are a lot of programmers out there who just love solving problems. And so on the software infrastructure side of things, there are a lot of dedicated volunteers who are just passionate about various software tools and like solving problems. And so open source is built largely on these volunteers who are passionate about a project. Maybe it originally started as scratching an itch. This thing didn't quite work for whatever problem I was throwing at it and I needed to work and I have the capability and I have the abilities to solve this problem. And so sure, I can give you code that solves the problem and you get hooked. Um, and so that's great. I mean, it's great that we can all work together and solve these problems and we have a shared tool that everyone can use and benefit from. The problem is when you get larger and larger amounts of people depending on these projects and you don't have a commensurate increase in the number of people taking care of these projects. And so, for instance, as John mentioned, Matt Plotlib, um, I have been a core developer on this project since sometime in grad school. Um, Matt Plotlib at that point didn't have support for wind barbs, which is how we look at wind data meteorology. And I knew, well, if meteorologists are ever going to pick up Python, we're going to need wind barbs. That's an obvious, as a meteorologist, that's an obvious hole. We'll never use Python if we don't have wind barbs. So again, there's a theme here. Procrastinating for my PhD I decided to write, figure out how to plot wind barbs using whatever Matt Plotlet was using under the hood. And so I added that, and now I've, you know, now 12 years been a Matt Plotlib core developer. Um, and there are about, well, on our, we have regular developer calls. There were nine people on the call on Monday. So you add 50% margin for error, maybe there's 15 active developers of MetPy. Um, or not MatPy, sorry, of Matplotlib, the Python plotting library. Um, you know, that had 2 million downloads last year, I think. So, you know, highly used, but 15 people developing on it and maybe two full-time people across... I think there are three people receiving funding to do it. I guess I get to use a little bit of my day job time to work on it, but because our community depends on it, but you know, not a lot of resources going in given the wide use of the library. And so that's the challenge of open source is this, this, this um, mismatch between how widely used and how, how not just used, but how dependent many people are on these libraries 
and yet how little resources are going into funding and and keeping these things around uh the british economist william forster lloyd in 1833 started the idea of the tragedy of the commons Thank you, and Shannon. I got that from Wikipedia, which is one of these, you know, communities supported, <laughs> of which I support. I have Wikipedia pencils, and I buy coffee for lots of developers, so I, you're welcome. That's all. <laughs> Thank you, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, really, there's, there's an XKCD a while back uh, that showed, you know, this big tower of blocks, uh, and the one little bitty block down at the way bottom of the tower uh, said like that package is being supported by that one guy in North Dakota. Uh, and that's really true <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, because if you think about it, we're, you know, the cat video you're seeing on your screen or the skew T that's getting plotted or whatever fundamentally is getting translated into machine instructions and ones and zeros. And there's a long ways between there, between the few lines of Python that you write to do that and that getting displayed on a graphics card or sent over a network. And there's a lot of people to buy beer for in that stack. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's, not, that's not complaining for me because I, I, I count myself blessed that thanks to the National Science Foundation, I am funded and I get paid to work on the open source projects I develop, but also thankful to the, you know, the general philosophy in the U.S. where things developed on taxpayer dollars are openly, openly available. So we are able to make the tools we work on in Unidata freely available and open source. But there's a lot of other things that aren't so well off. Um, one of the examples that comes to mind is there was a day a couple years ago, a bunch of websites went down <laughs> because of a tool called LeftPad. And basically an open source developer got fed up. It's, it's a JavaScript tool that basically is designed to left pad strings with spaces. So you have the string A, B, C, D, and it left pads it so many with so many spaces to the left. So then you have space, 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 A, B, C, D. And so a lot of other toolkits were using that, and a lot of other websites were using those toolkits. And all of a sudden, you know, when the developer pulls down his left pad toolkit, you know, Facebook goes down. I don't know if it was actually Facebook, but there were prominent websites that were no longer working correctly because this developer, open source developer, got fed up one day and took his package down. And so that's just an example of how um, vulnerable some of the open source infrastructure is. Um, on the other side, or maybe not the other side, but, you know, a one of the challenges is you have a lot of places doing a lot of detailed machine learning because that's where the science is these days. And, and Python is one of the premier tools for doing machine learning you have places like netflix or bloomberg or uh, the finance company or whatever using a lot of python tools and you know sometimes it's challenging for them to you know those are actually two good examples of companies who have given back a lot to the ecosystem and are open sourcing things and sponsor developed working things but you have a lot of other companies who aren't so uh, generous with the resources to give back to the community of developers, to help sponsor developers, to just maintain things, to contribute patches to things. Um, and some of that's not nefarious. It's not always greed. Um, the, the tax structure or, you know, just general corporate um, 
restrictions means that companies can't just give money to projects and just donate things. Like, donate is not a good word for companies in, in many respects. I mean, in some ways, they, yes, they can donate things and get a write-off, but it's not the same for trying to donate to an open-source project. And so um, there are certain challenges just as the system is that, you know, make it hard for companies who even want to do the right thing to say, okay, we want to give money here, but we need it to be done in a certain way. And it's not like Joe Bob, the developer of whatever open source toolkit is ready to have, you know, a bunch of money dropped on them from a, from a company. And so there are just sometimes challenges in how, you know, there, there's an often a refrain in the open source world of money doesn't necessarily solve problems, it creates them. Right. <laughs> For sure. And yeah, there's a lot of a lot of legal things to navigate well, and especially liabilities and who owns what and Especially if you have a project that had five developers and maybe the company didn't want to sponsor five developers full time, but you know, Wanted to give ten thousand dollars to help, you know. Hey, you guys have done great things. How do you do, how do you spend ten thousand dollars amongst five developers who've been working in their volunteer time? How do you even do anything with that? Like, what's the mech? Like these these five guys who are doing this in their free time all of a sudden have ten k dropped in their lap, and how do they decide what to do with it? I've chosen an example that might make, you know, might make it easy. Just give them each two k. But what if you know one of those guys has spent fifty percent of his time on the project, and two of them are newcomers, or you know. It all just gets suddenly. There's a monetary incentive, and it can just make things super messy. So we've kept you pretty long already, <laughs> but if if somebody is listening to this and thinking this is this is my thing, this is something I'm interested in, I think you've kind of laid out uh, at least how you got to where you are. And most of these things you you fall into by going and making contributions and finding a place to go. Uh, but the question I'm sure we're going to get from someone is, are you hiring? <laughs> we are technically hiring right now. Um, it's funny that you asked that just because we have, we have an instructional designer position open as well as a, um, a position for someone to do some AI machine learning not work actually doing AI machine learning, but helping our tools do better to support AI, uh, artificial intelligence, or machine learning type applications. Um, so if you if you're interested in that, it's uh, um, I can't remember the URL, but it's UCar Careers if you Google it. Um, <laughs> And we'll link that in, sure. in the show notes. So we have a couple of open folks, positions. But I'd say even, you know, if it's not Unidata, UCAR, you know, just the space, it's, I hate saying it because there's so much abuse of this in terms of follow your passion. Like that's, that's ripe for abuse. And, you know, there's so much in terms of hiring in the technology industry. It's like, well, if you don't work in your free time on software, are you a real programmer? Which I think is just garbage. I work on software in my free time because I love it. And I'd rather be doing that. Like, there are days I'd rather play video games, and there's days I'd rather be, you know, beating my head against some Python code. And I have no problem spending my free time beating on that Python code, but I don't 
I don't like that there's this world where, oh, you need to be working 60 to 80 hours a week on code, and if you're not, you're not a real programmer. That's, that's just utter crap. Um, but I think it's great if you have a passion for software and, you know, enjoy doing it. Then, then I think the way to get going on that path is to find some kind of project you're passionate about, especially, you know, when you're starting out early on, um, just like you would grow a portfolio in any kind of other, um, you know, creative type skill. I mean, people don't necessarily think of programming as a creative art, but there's a lot of creativity in terms of how you write code and, and, and problem solving. Um, and so I got going because I had a problem or I had things I wanted to explore and that motivated me learning. I don't like the idea of picking up a book and trying to read it cover to cover and then suddenly you're a Python programmer. Like, I've done that. I didn't learn nearly as much reading a book as I did um, trying to say, I need this picture. I need to make this thing that doesn't exist currently exist and I'm going to go Google around for all the pieces I need to make this thing exist. That has been a far more successful path for me than any kind of just reading something cover to cover that, you know, maybe it's fascinating reading cover to cover, but if you don't apply it, then three months later, you're not going to remember what it is you read in that book, or you're not going to remember, you know, a important percentage of what was in that book that you need to apply it. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of practical applications of, of learning technology. If that's programming, if that's, you know, it's the same thing if you're trying to use Word or if you're trying to do Excel. Like, you've got to be applying it to a problem that's practical to you so that you have that aha moment of the light The light goes on and oh, I get it. That, that, that worked really well for me. I hope people take, so John and I say that a lot on this podcast, but I hope people take this from somebody else too, <laughs> is that um, it's one of those things people are like, well, I don't even know where to start. And I think from listening to you, you just start by messing around and it's like if you don't know where to start you've got to find something to do so just like you said like find a problem that you want to solve and do it um because if you never start even if you fail you know even if you go to somebody else just like you had to make up things to solve your your problems doing your graduate work and stuff like that so if you just sit there and flounder yeah you're not going to move forward but if you just keep at it and keep trying stuff you can you can get there and i think people get lost between that well i don't even know where to start and then just actually like flubbing around and you're gonna make a ton of mistakes and that's okay you actually learn more from them that's really hard to tell someone back in our positions you know trying to figure out you know what to do for grad school or something like that it's hard in it's hard to understand that, but people really need to understand that as they're making these decisions. Like, it's okay to mess up. You can still learn so much more from that, you know? So that's cool to hear. Absolutely. No, I, I, that, I, I don't want it to come across as someone who I have known everything I've needed to do at every step of the way. That's <laughs> not remotely how this has gone. Like, honestly, the best thing I have going for me is a certain tenacity and willing to just, if something gets under my skin, so help me God, I'm going to figure it out. Now that also comes to be like a curse in terms of like, 
I need to be doing X, but I'm still over <laughs> here. Like, I can't let go of Y because it just it got under my skin. And so help me God, I'm not gonna let go of it until I figure it out one way or another. Um, that has served me well. It has also created problems, but absolutely, it's like I, I one of my long-term career goals is to just take the mystique off of programming. People who are good programmers aren't good because, oh, they just get it right the first time. Programming is not something you get right the first time. Like, okay, maybe there's one or two people out there who just write perfect code the first time. I have not met them. <laughs> I know there are people who are better at it than I am. It's about making mistakes and learning from them, and it's being willing to make the mistakes. I honestly... If I write code and it runs without error the first time, I'm suspect of it. 100% I'm staring at that saying, okay, you didn't error. So there must be an error that's just silently passing here. Like there's always a problem. And if it doesn't scream the first time I run it, that means the problem's just silent and waiting for me to find it later, which is very, very disconcerting. Like the code that errors the first time I run, oh, that I feel good about that. Like... That means everything's, you know, the computer's executing all of it. I can't tell you the number of times I've thought something was running and it turns out, oh, no, that wasn't actually, that wasn't running. <laughs> so, no, I like good programmers aren't the ones who, who make no mistakes the first time. Good programmers are the ones who stick with it and, you know, through experience are willing to who make things that can be changed and are willing to revisit their assumptions and, you know, completely burn to the ground what they created the first time and redo it because it's better the second time. Um, you know, we all consider, like, it, we did no service, no, we did a disservice to the field by calling it software engineering. <laughs> because engineering conveys a certain amount of concreteness. You can design a bridge so it doesn't fall down. You can design electronic systems so that they have certain performance aspects. I don't care what kind of software engineering supposed formality you apply. You don't know how code's going to behave long term. You just don't. And so it's it's the, the idea of that, you know, there's a whole group out there called software carpentry. And it's that idea that software is more of a carpentry skill where you kind of know good practice on how to assemble things and whatnot. But it's not this rigid engineering discipline of you know yes or no answers or you know true um concrete best practices it's just you know it's it's doing good things and it's being willing to learn and revisit your assumptions and 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 change things when it needs changing I love that all three of us started sort of in the exact same place. Ryan and I at virtually the same time and John not much farther behind that. And we have three totally different, you know, career outcomes. And I think that's just a testament to, you know, what Ryan just said about like trying to, you know, make mistakes and learning from them and being willing to do that. Um, but one thing I think we've all probably made mistakes in is, um, it's probably differential equations, right, John? Yeah, and I think that's an excellent segue into this week's Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> I mean, maybe we've all had some 
vampirism too. Maybe that's <laughs> something we have in common besides OD. Um, no. <laughs> no. Oh, just me? Okay. <laughs> just you on that Awkward. one. Uh, so uh, this week's paper comes from a listener, Martin, just in time for Halloween. Cycles of Fear, Periodic Blood-Sucking Rates for Vampires by Hartle et al. <laughs> oh, this is ridiculous. And as always, it has some of the best sentences in a scientific paper ever. <laughs> and, and I also love the fact that when we were discussing the paper before the show, Ryan and I both were like, it's just application of lack of Volterra. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which um, the fact that I haven't done ODEs in like 15 years and can still remember that one is just startling. <laughs> it's amazing what you remember sometimes. Isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is from 1992. It's lovely, right? It's super good. Um, I read the first... Just the first sentence, even, I read this to my husband. I was like, this is what I'm working on right now. While the behavior of vampires has been studied and documented over long periods of time, neither the economic significance of vampirism nor the optimality of blood-sucking strategies has been analyzed by means of rational modeling. Because, <laughs> of course, that's where the holes in this are. <laughs> uh, definitely. It just needs a little bit more realistic <laughs> model. And to make the model more realistic, of course, <laughs> differential equations. Uh, so basically, I skipped pages like 3 through 10 because <laughs> I'm over this. Also, <laughs> <laughs> well, Latka Volterra, I think the original problem, wasn't it like a leopard, you know, lynx or something? It was a, it's a predator-prey problem. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it was all about populations between predators and prey and, and trying to measure the, or trying to model the dynamics of those two populations over time. So vampires and Yeah, so humans. you get a lot of prey. Yeah. Yeah, you get, you get a lot of prey and the predators uh, become very happy about that and reproduce a lot and your predator population goes up and outpaces the prey population growth and then prey declines, predators decline, and you go through this cyclic uh, <laughs> oscillation around never really being stable, uh, which is some, a recurring theme in earth science. Meteorology, geology, all of the ologies uh, that are earth science are about cycles, not stability. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try to use the words asymptotically satiated vampires over and over again this week though <laughs> um that was one of the three different cases we solved this for <laughs> yes and only in this paper can you get a phase plane plot of vampiric cycles it was absolutely amazing The fact that even one of the sections is stability analysis, and next we linearize the canonical system to analyze the stability behavior of the steady state was just like, oh, I forget here I'm reading a paper on vampirism and not, you know, the usual stuff. The usual stuff. Which is, you know, something more traditional. 
You know, it's so funny because you guys are the tool makers and I'm definitely on the other end of that and the tool user. And I've probably read more papers about vampires than ODEs in the last year. I'm just going to throw that out. (laughs) Well, and I really loved in here where they started talking about uh, hop bifurcations because that's something that we deal with. uh, Well, I dealt with in frictional mechanics a lot and it's dealt with in meteorology too. But it's a, it's a point in a system stability where you switch into being uh, a periodic solution. And then you can talk about, okay, off that, do you go into a, uh, a strong attractor? Like, do you become stable in phase space? Or do you shoot off in phase space and, and never become stable? Or do you orbit around this point in phase space, as you do uh, if you're a vampire, and you go through these these cycles of how fast you're consuming blood so that you have an optimum population to, to harvest. <clears throat> yep. <laughs> this is so funny. It's with 14 references, by the yes. way. Oh, 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 oh. And, and number three, the Transylvanian problem of renewable resources. <laughs> Um, there was a really great, um, <laughs> to a traditional vampirologist, <laughs> didn't know that was a word, the use of optimal control theory against vampires as exercised in reference six seems highly questionable. <laughs> I love this though. This is due to the fact that the application of Pentragon's principle requires the derivation of a shadow price for vampires. Such a price is however non-existent since vampires do not have a shadow. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Have you looked at what the title of number six is? Because um, that one. Nope. Macroeconomic policy and the optimal destruction of vampires. <laughs> See? <laughs> Journal of Political Economy. Like, come um, on. Yeah, it seems like maybe this next month I'm also going to digest more vampire papers than ODE papers. <laughs> <laughs> I had no yeah, idea the vampire papers. literature was so extensive. Oh, and so rich. <laughs> These are not sparkling vampires. These are legit. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, this is so great. The- I mean, yeah, in terms of Halloween papers, I, this has to rank up there. I, we did that with, one with, with some that, of the best ones we've done. We did that one with that sawed-off hand. That was real weird, but... <laughs> oh, the, the cadaver hand for pumpkin injuries from pumpkin carving yeah. tools? That was pretty... That was pretty gross. That was a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say that we've been on a real spate of excellent references in our, in our fun papers. Like, it's just a... Yeah. Plethora of wormholes to go down instead of, you know, grading papers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, doing a lit review is is always an important step of the process. And we don't leave that. Yeah, uh, correct. I'm gonna pull this 1981 master's thesis that's in German. I'm sure there's some good vampire stuff in that. <laughs> um. Well, Ryan, before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to add about vampires, <laughs> meteorology, programming, life, the universe, and everything? Um, I mean, speaking of things sucking the life out of me, uh, no, I, I just, I'll just echo the, you know, 
I, I don't want people to be scared of programming. I don't want anyone to think, oh, I have it all figured out and, you know, oh, that person knows and I could never do that. Like, if you like computers, if you actually don't hate having to sit at one and, and do stuff, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Like, that's that's the path forward is making mistakes and learning from them. And if I can do anything to to take that mystique off of somehow programmers, you know, the real programmers, quote unquote, real, are the ones who don't make mistakes. Like, no, like I, I screw up on a daily basis, if not hourly basis. And the only difference is I, I enjoy it or I enjoy working with them. I enjoy solving the problems and I'm not afraid of, you know, screwing up on a regular basis. And that doesn't impact how I feel about my job. <laughs> Ryan's not afraid of sucking. <clears throat> yep. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just don't tell my boss. <laughs> well, if you've got any data on vampiric oscillations in your region of the country or how often you mess up when programming, we would love to collect those statistics. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can tweet us at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, you can go to the Software Underground, the Slack channel, and the Don't Panic section and talk about vampires on there. And thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Um, they help make interviews like this possible. You can find us, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even those seismologists look at their watches and think the new Madrid is way overdue. Until next week, remember, don't panic. <laughs> it's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.